encourage you to open that up, and on the inside you'll see our sermon text for the morning from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22, this is something like sermon number 75 on the Gospel of Luke. We have been journeying in it for a while, and we will finish this glorious Gospel by the fall, and um, it's going to be a good time. We're looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning, and I would like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not, eat, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at th- on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe! to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, writes this, if we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. Stop. 
We, we looked at this a number of weeks ago. Um, I had the privilege of preaching on Matthew 11 from where that comes. Jesus tells us that he himself, his heart, who he is, is gentle and lowly. That he is endlessly approachable, gentle, humble, meek, easy to come to and easy to talk to. And that reality that Jesus is gentle and lowly is absolutely impossible to over-preach and to over-believe in. Ortland goes on to write this. It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. And Jesus' gentle and lowliness is nowhere more clearly seen than in his death on the cross for you and for me. A death that is central to our text today. Now, while we're not looking at the historical account of Jesus' crucifixion, the whole thing is about Jesus' death as our sin substitute. The Lord, I think this morning, intends to teach us that Jesus' death on the cross as our Passover lamb resulted in the creation of new and eternal Israel of God and is the fuel for our joyful worship. Okay, that was a lot, but it's really important that Jesus' death on the cross as our Passover lamb, that is our sin substitute, the one who gets what we deserve and we receive what he earned. He's our Passover lamb. That death on the cross resulted in the creation of new Israel, Eternal Israel, the church made of Jew and Gentile, the new Israel. And that cross of Jesus as our Passover lamb fuels our joyful worship. We're going to look at that throughout this text. We're looking at a few verses here that is a part of a literary unit, if you will, Luke 22 and 23. We're coming out of a long section in Luke's gospel, if you remember, of parables and teaching Last week, we spent a lot of time looking at a long discourse or sermon of Jesus, and now Luke is transitioning, and we're going to be looking at some fast-paced action scenes of Jesus, death and resurrection. So chapters 22 and 23 have five sections. We're going to look at just two of these sections this morning, but those five sections are the preparation for Passover, the Last Supper, Jesus' prayer and arrest in Gethsemane. The trials of Jesus and the death of Jesus. So we're looking at the two, the first two, this morning. And I'm kind of glad to say this morning, our next, you know, 20 minutes or so together is going to be just a lot of Jesus. Can I get an amen? I don't have a lot of polish. I don't have very many jokes. I don't have a lot of illustrations. We're just going to talk about Jesus as he is portrayed in this text and you may be asking, well, how are you going to apply it to my life? There's nothing better for your life than good theology. One of my seminary professors, the founder and president of Indianapolis Theological Seminary, he's a good friend of mine, always teaches this to his students. You want application? Give your people Christ. We're so hungry for the application. How do I become a better parent? Give me 12 steps to, to being a better spouse. Or how do I deal with my singleness or, or this or that? We're going to get a lot of application today because I'm just going to give you Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel. And so I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. If not, I'm sorry. But the first thing we're looking at is verses 1 through 13. 
which is the preparation of the Passover. But I don't want you just to know that as a computer. This is preparation for the Passover. What I want you to see is that God is in complete control of the passion of Christ. Passion of Christ, not, not, not his emotional life. The passion is the way we speak of Jesus' death for us as our substitute. God is in complete, utter control of the death of his son. Look back at verses 1 and 2. The feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. This feast of unleavened bread is a a general time of of seven days. It's a seven-day feast or party. And one of those seven days is the Passover. So by the time you get to the first century with Jesus, the feast of unleavened bread and the one-day celebration of Passover becomes synonymous almost. Although the Passover, accurately understood, is one day of a larger and longer feast. The Passover celebration was the time for God's people, the people of Israel at the time, to remember, to celebrate, to enjoy God's deliverance of them from Egypt. You may recall and know the the story of the Exodus. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. But specifically, the Passover is celebrating the last plague, the tenth plague. You may recall... Israel finds themselves in Egypt because of Joseph's rise to power. He is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, makes it to Egypt, becomes the second most powerful person on the planet. His brothers eventually make their way to Joseph. You have this great story of forgiveness, but the people of Israel set up camp in Egypt. But a few pharaohs go go by, and the people of Israel grow in numbers. They like reproducing like New City does, and uh, they eventually start to scare the Egyptians. They're, getting to, they're starting to get rather large in number, and so what happens is they don't, the Pharaoh does not remember Joseph, and the people of Israel are enslaved. Slaves in Egypt. It's a, it's a sad story and a gruesome story that you can read about. They are treated poorly, but they cry out to Yahweh, their God, and he hears them and sends a prophet by the name of Moses to deliver them. Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. God has come to to rescue them. You've got to release your grip of God's people or bad things are going to happen. He refuses and experiences 10 plagues. All the people of Egypt experience these 10 plagues. And the last one, the most heavy, the 10th plague, is that God kills the firstborn of everyone in the land of Egypt. But what God does is he spares his people any person who follows some simple instructions of the Passover. That is, God provides a gracious way for the people of Israel to not experience the death of their firstborn by slaughtering a spotless lamb, killing a lamb as a sacrifice, and taking the blood of the lamb and putting it on their door. And in so doing, when God, through the means of an angel of death, comes through the land of Egypt, he passes over the homes where that blood is. This feast remembers that. God's setting the the people free from slavery to the Egyptians through the Passover. And this feast is, is one of three major feasts in Israel. It had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And so what happened is, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you were out in the sticks or the rural areas or other big cities throughout the Middle East, you flocked to the city. And so the, the, the Jerusalem population swells. 
We're introduced to chief priests and scribes. We've seen them a lot. They're antagonistic to Jesus. They basically are Pharisees and Sadducees who are part of a big team of, of, of Jews in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin, and they are not happy with Jesus. And they want to kill him, but they're afraid of the people. And so that's where Judas comes into play. They need, they need a covert, secret mission to get to Jesus. And look at verse 3. A very strange verse. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. Now, Satan enters into Judas. John's gospel tells us that Satan influenced Judas to go to the chief scribes and, and the priests, but that it was actually at the Last Supper, while eating the bread and drinking the wine, that Satan enters into Jesus. But regardless, the point here is that this is a direct assault of the devil on the Son of God. I've spent a lot of time in commentaries this past week thinking about this text, and just about everybody wants to come up with a, a reason why Judas betrayed Jesus. Some people were even arguing there was good intentions. Um, like he, wa- he wanted Jesus to get in with the chief priests. Uh, uh, anyways, the, the point being that we're actually freed from speculation as to why did Judas betray the Son of God? We're told there is satanic power behind it. There's satanic power behind it, but this doesn't surprise Jesus. If you've been a good Bible reader through the years, you'll recall the Gospels telling us over and over again, did Jesus know from the beginning who was going to betray him? We're told that. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him, This doesn't take God by surprise. Like, uh uh-oh, had a plan. Judas is now ruining the whole thing. Jesus isn't taken off guard. Actually, Judas is simply fulfilling the absolute sovereign and unchanging plan of God. Jesus is in utter control. Satan's about to be duped. Because in so entering Judas, Satan does the will of God. He does exactly what God wanted to happen. Further thoughts on this, if you just jump down to the bottom of of our text in verse 22, look at this. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It means decreed beforehand. Planned and ordained. Determined ahead of time. This was the plan of God all along. As you're reading your Bible, whether you're in the book of Exodus or in the middle of Isaiah, like what in the world's going on, God is actually sovereignly orchestrating all of human history to get to this point. He is in utter control of the death of Jesus for sin, even though satanic power, demonic power is involved. But lest we think... Judas is off the hook. He's not responsible because he's just operating as a robot. Satan's in him. Look at the end of verse 22. The Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Let me recap. Did Satan enter Judas and thereby influence his betrayal of the Messiah? Yes. Was God in absolute control of all of this? Yes. 
Was Judas responsible and therefore judged for the betrayal? Yes. How does that work? I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of the law. We're not told how the mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility works together. But what is revealed to us over and over and over and over again in Scripture is that we have a way bigger God than we think. Proverbs 16 tells the story of lots, basically modern day they would be dice, that every roll of the dice is determined by God. Every dust particle that is around you right now is moving exactly where God appoints it to be. Satan enters into Judas to accomplish the exact plan that God had before the foundation of the world, to pursue you to save you, to die for you, and make you a son and daughter. So all that to say, I think it's very important for us to have a category in which God is utterly sovereign over all things, from dice to dust to Satan. And yet we as humankind are responsible for our decisions, our sins, and choices. If we don't have that kind of category... We're going to end up on one side of the error or heresy horse, or we're actually just going to struggle with our Bible reading. You can't get very far. The first book has Joseph being betrayed and terrible sin committed against him, and God says, yeah, I did it because I had good things in store. I'm in 1 Samuel in my own devotional reading, and just by chapter 3, we're told God wanted to kill two of the sons of the prophets, that he sent a lying spirit into some crazy prophets, over and over again, we see God in control. Luke, one who is very aware of God's sovereignty, also wrote part two of his gospel. It's called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or maybe more accurately, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And I just wanted to read you two passages, and I didn't put this in the insert because I ran out of room. But you can jot this down if you're a note taker. The first one is in Acts 2, 23 and 24. This is Peter's first sermon. The Holy Spirit descends on the apostles. They start doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You have God's presence there uh, symbolized with fire above their heads. And they're speaking in different tongues so that everybody present can hear them. The Romans who put Jesus on the cross are there. And the Jews that cried crucify him are in the, the crowd as well as those faithfully following Jesus. What does Peter do includes in his sermon these words. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hang on, Pete. Jesus is delivered up according to the definitive, definite, planned ahead of time plan, and yet they crucified him and killed him. Which one is it? Did the Romans kill Jesus? Did did the Jews put Jesus on the cross? Yep. Exactly as God had planned. And yet they're responsible for the killing of the only innocent person to ever live. Let me give you a better one. Two chapters later, there's a 
a pretty sweet prayer meeting going on with the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. They're praying, and in their praying, they're recounting to God the truth of the gospel. And this is what they pray. God, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I said, I said the P word, predestined. Don't worry, it just means to destine ahead of time. God predestined the death of his son Jesus for you, for me. And yet Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel are to blame for the death of the Son of God. But they did what they were predestined to do. How's it work? Answers Deuteronomy 29, 29. But if we deny the sovereignty of God, or we overemphasize it too much and lose our own human responsibility, again, you're off on either side in error. Why am I going through all this? It was made known to me this week, and I think it's right, that one of your greatest problems, one of my greatest problems, is that we just don't believe in the sovereignty of God. You don't believe it. If you did, if I did, I think life would look a little different. Your anger is because you're denying the sovereignty of God. Most of the problems and complaints in your life is simply a denial of God's control in human history. Your doubt is because you don't believe the sovereignty of God. Your lack of forgiveness, your impatience, your anxiety, your lack of generosity, your fear is because you don't believe the sovereignty of God. Whether or not you actually don't and you are disagreeing with everything I'm saying, or more practically, you believe in what I'm saying, but functionally you don't believe it. I don't believe it. All of our complaints, most of our problems in life are all rooted in a small view of God, a view that the scriptures do not have. He is utterly sovereign over all things. We are responsible. How does it work? I don't know, but my hero Charles Spurgeon said that they were two sides of the, the railroad track. If you get one off, you, 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 you lose it. They're both moving in the same direction together, and as you're standing on the railroad track looking ahead, eventually the two tracks run together. They're not enemies to be split, but friends that hold hands. Sovereignty of God and our responsibility. The Jews killed Jesus exactly as it was predestined to do. You didn't know you were going to get a theology lesson on God's sovereignty, but <clears throat> let's get back into our text from verses 7 through 13. We have this weird section of, of Jesus sending Peter and John to prepare the Passover. I'm not going to make very many comments on it, but essentially they're supposed to get into the city. There's going to be a, a man with a water jar. That's uh, countercultural. Guys usually carried water in, in big skins that were heavier. To have a jar would have been something that a female would have carried, the jar. So all that to say, this is either emphasizing the divine foreknowledge of Jesus that he knew all of this would happen. Peter, John, go do it and watch the plan unfold. Or it's emphasizing 
the intentional preparation of Jesus. That as he's in and out of the city for this whole week, he's done some side hustle and prepared um, a, a private room to enjoy the Passover with the disciples. And what he's doing and secretly doing that is making sure he's not betrayed prematurely. That he's not found out by the chief priests and the scribes. So this is a covert, planned meeting of Jesus so that he can enjoy this meal and teach the disciples a lot of stuff. Because in this little section we're looking at, you could go back to John 13 through 17, and all of those teachings of Jesus happen here. So I'm not sure which one it is. I go back and forth. Divine foreknowledge of Jesus or intentional planning and preparation of Jesus, we're not sure. But that gets us to our second section of the text, the Lord's Supper. But again, I don't want you just to know it as a historic reality, the Lord's Supper. What I want you to see is that Jesus' death is the new exodus whereby we are delivered from slavery to sin and death. This is verses 14 through 23. If you look at your insert, you should have a a passage from Luke 9. Luke 9, verses 30 and 31. Follow along with me. It says, Behold, two men were talking with Jesus. So this is, the context is the transfiguration. That unique story where Jesus is up on the mountain and he's transformed into his glorified body. Peter and, and John are there, the ones who are, have also been sent to prepare the Passover. Jesus Gives them a little glimpse into eternity. And Moses and Elijah are there who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That about to accomplish at Jerusalem is what we're looking at now. But back in Luke chapter 9, Luke is making abundantly clear that Jesus is leading a new exodus. Why do I say that? Did I underline a word? In Luke 9, departure, it's the word exodus. It's the word exodus. Jesus is leading a new exodus, but this exodus, the exodus of Jesus, is not just deliverance from slavery in Egypt, as with the Old Testament people of God, but is with the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, the new Israel. And his exodus, the exodus of Jesus, is deliverance, not from Egypt, but from slavery to your own sin, to your death, slavery to false gods. So this Passover meal, which I explained a little bit what it's remembering back in Exodus, would have been a meal, right? So it's a little, it's a little bummer that we do the Lord's Supper with just a little bit of this. It would have included lamb, multiple rounds of of meal, they would have eaten bitters and other foods that resemble and point to spiritual realities. Anybody know how many glasses of wine you had at this? Four. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Four glasses of wine, each glass representing something. And scholars believe that we see two cups in Luke's account. They believe that it's the second and the third cup. That's going to be important in a moment. Look at verse 17. Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. That is the cup. Now, I love the elder who prayed for us this morning. You guys may know him well. He's been around for a while by the name of Michael. 
he has been really arguing for our elder team to move to communion here on Sunday morning with a common cup. That is that you all drink out of the same cup. Don't worry, we're shutting him down hard. But he's been at it for a while, common cup. He's just trying to be biblical, I guess, and in once a more intimate setting, but I'm not going to let him have it. Um, I like you guys, but not that much. And so this, this second cup is given, and then in verse 19, let's look at the bread. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, my body given for you. It carries with it a vicarious meaning. What that means is that Jesus is speaking of being given in our place. It's speaking of Jesus giving himself for us, but not just in the death language, not just Jesus being wounded and crucified for us, but that he is present with us as well. This bread, when we look at the bread in just a moment as we go to the table, as we do every week, the bread is representing not just his body wounded and pierced for us, but that his body, who he is, Jesus himself is with us and more close to us than the very bread in our hand and when we consume it in our mouth and in our bodies, Jesus is more near. He's more near to us than he was with his apostles when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. That's very hard to believe, but it's awesome. Jesus is closer to you than he was with Peter in this text. Verse 20, though, let's get bloody. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is where we get radical. Jesus is taking something that meant something specific for over a thousand years and saying, it's actually always been about me. It's always pointed to Jesus. The Old Testament Passover was just a blurry shadow of what it truly pointed to. That is, Jesus' death for you. So Israel, they'd been remembering their deliverance, the exodus from Egypt. But every time they recalled the slaughter of the Passover lamb, every time they sung and celebrated the blood that was on the doorpost, every time they remembered the angel of death passing over their house and sparing them, it was all pointing to Jesus. It was his blood that would be put not around a door, but over your life so that the wrath of the triune God, the just punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, would pass over us and land on Jesus. Verse 20 tells us that it is the blood of the new covenant. That harkens back to Jeremiah 31 where the prophet uh, he's writing about 600 years before Jesus is looking ahead to when God would create a new covenant, or literally a renewed covenant with God's people. And that new covenant, God would be our people, he, God would be our God and we would be his people. He would put his spirit permanently within us, write his law on our hearts, enable us to obey and would graciously grant forgiveness of sins. That's the new covenant. It happened in Jesus. We're experiencing it now. So just to briefly close us, as we go to the table, I just want to think a little bit more about Jesus, specifically a little bit more about the table we are about to partake. 
And I wrote these in your insert. I, I rely heavily on a, a, a scholar from the UK by Michael, named Michael Reeves. These quotes come from his fabulous book, Rejoicing in Christ. But when we go to the table, we ought to have a sense in which we are remembering the past, thinking about our present, and looking ahead to the future. Let me walk you through that briefly and just say a couple of verses. The first is while we're taking the bread and the wine, we should have a backward-looking mentality to the past. What are we looking at? We're looking at the reality that sin's penalty has been paid. The penalty of sin. The sins you did last week, the sins you did this morning on your way to church, the sins you're going to do this next week have already been paid for. Michael Reeves says this. Having died with him, I love this, we can look no further back into our past than him. Christ, not failure, is our history. Or to use the words of Paul in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned your sin in the flesh of Jesus. Even the sins you haven't committed yet, even your good deeds that are tainted with sin, already punished in Jesus. If we get this wrong, we have one of two outcomes, despair or pride. If I ask you, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe? How did you get saved? Why will you be in heaven in glory? If anything you say to me is in the first person, you are wrong. I believed. I was good enough. I was a servant. I read my Bible all the time. I rarely miss church. I, 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 no. Christ Jesus died for you. That's why. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The answer to why you're a Christian, why you will be in glory, why you are forgiven, why you are saved is in the third person, Jesus. Now, present enjoyment. While we're at the table in just a few moments, we're not just looking back at the past. We emphasize that rightly, but I think we miss these next two. First, the present enjoyment. Remembering that sin's power has been defeated. Sin's power destroyed. Michael Reeves, yet again. United to Jesus, we now share his glad life and standing before the Father. Filled with his spirit, we are made ever more like him. When we're partaking of the bread and the wine, we're also remembering that you're no longer a slave to sin like you were before you met Jesus. You can actually say no to sin. That was not the case before Jesus. You can actually fight and have victory over sin. And that victory, when we have it, is not the reason we're forgiven, but because we are forgiven, because we are in right standing with God, we have the Spirit presently, we can fight and have success 
in our wrestling and warring with besetting sin. Present. But third and finally, as we're taking this meal to ourselves, we have the privilege of looking to the future when sin's presence will be destroyed and eliminated. Sin's penalty taken care of in the past. Presently, sin does not have dominion over us anymore, and one day the very presence of sin done away with. That's not right now, but it will be. Michael Reeves, last time, the judge of all the earth is our faithful Savior. When he appears, we will be with him. We will be like him, and we will be co-heirs with him. Note takers, you can jot down Isaiah 25. And Revelation 19, 6 through 8, speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we go home to be with the Lord, whether that's death that takes you or Jesus' return, we're going to feast. A feast that our bread and wine is pointing toward. A feast where we'll have lots of glasses of wine. And remember Jesus, the scar-born hands for you. And for me, a death of Jesus that was planned from eternity past, executed and and done just as it has been determined, verse 22, and a meal that we will enjoy forever when sin is done away with, cancer is gone, tears no more, and we are no longer sinners wrestling with sin. The great Puritan Richard Baxter said this, nowhere is God so near to you as in Christ Jesus. And nowhere is Christ so familiarly represented to us than in this holy sacrament, the sacrament to which we turn now. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the reality that we get to come to this table and enjoy your presence in a unique way. Jesus, thank you for your life and your death and your glorious resurrection for our justification. I pray that we would be deeply rooted in the gospel, that we would know deep in our bones, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you are good. Be with us now as we go to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.